Welcome to Investment Magazine's ongoing podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders and industry stakeholders at a time when the maturing industry is challenged to provide retirement solutions for older Australians, as well as continuing the work of building assets for those still in the workforce. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations and outcomes, addressing vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement and savings system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to continue the conversation. And now, please enjoy the episode. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with AIA Australia, a leading life and wellbeing specialist with 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Today's guests are Kim Bowater and Ian Fryer. Kim Bowater is Director of Consulting at Frontier Advisors. Kim is responsible for overseeing Frontier's delivery of advice and research, is a member of Frontier's Investment Committee and Chair of Frontier's Client Portfolio Review Committee. She is also lead consultant for several large superannuation funds. Previously at Frontier, Kim managed Frontier's research program, leading teams including alternatives, currency and infrastructure, and providing investment advice to clients and founding Frontier's Retirement Solutions Group. Kim has 25 years industry experience and is a chartered financial analyst, holds a Bachelor of Science degree with first-class honours in mathematical statistics, and is a member of the CFA Institute. Ian Fryer has been involved with the super industry for about 25 years and has been with Chant West for more than 16 years. As General Manager, Ian has overall responsibility for all of Chant West's research and consulting services. Prior to becoming General Manager, Ian spent more than 15 years as the company's Head of Research. A well-known industry figure, Ian is a respected leader and values the great relationships he has built across the broader sector. Ian is a qualified actuary and holds a Bachelor of Science Honours. Today we're talking about the performance test outcomes. The second year's results were recently revealed, which provides few surprises. Days later, Treasury announced that it was asking submissions on the Your Future, Your Super performance test. Now seems like a good time to talk about the test, the outcomes, the effectiveness and the way forward. And I'm pleased to welcome our two experts here today to discuss this topic with me. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with the outcomes. APRA released the most recent outcomes of performance test at the end of August. Five products failed to meet meet the benchmark this year, including four that failed for the second time. A further five products that failed last time passed this year. So, Ian, can I start with you? Please, can you take us through the latest performance test results and explain the latest findings? Yeah, sure. So, there's uh, four funds that failed the test for the second time. Um, those funds are, well, they're my supers at least, will be closed to new members. Um, and of those four, three of them uh, have already um, got plans to exit the industry. So, in some ways, it looks like it is a success. Um, Treasury is trying to recognise funds that aren't doing all that well and move members from uh, those funds to others. So, that seems to be working well. Indeed, there were some other funds that may well have failed a second time as well, but had already exited. So, on the surface, that looks like a success. Um, the other part that looks successful is 
there was only uh, five funds that failed the test overall for the second time. So there's only one more MySuper that failed. And indeed, that was just a subplan of one of the other uh, MySupers that failed. So there was actually no new fund that failed the test for the first time. So that seems to be a big tick as well for the industry. It looked like the industry has got us act together um, and has been able to pass the test. Having said that, though, the industry has been able to pass the test. Have they been able to provide strong uh, investment outcomes for members? Indeed, have some funds been more focused on the test than providing longer-term outcomes? And indeed, passing the test is quite short-term. Passing the test is all, is all about looking at the next year and making sure that when you add the next year to your previous seven years, that you're going to pass the test. So, one of the issues with the test is it can push a number of funds, especially those that were close to failing the test, uh, to focus on just passing the test, perhaps at the expense of long-term outcomes for members. So, that's not ideal. So, some ways that funds managed to pass the test, um, one of the ways was to reduce admin fees. So, that's probably a really good thing. There were some funds that were charging fees and those fees were perhaps a bit higher and led to them failing the test. So, they've reduced those fees. So, that's a, that's a good outcome. Uh, another way was to reduce what we might call active risk. So, reduce the, the difference between what you're doing in certain asset classes compared to the benchmark. So, go closer to the benchmark. Um, so, an example of that could be in fixed interest. Um, a number of funds were lower on duration. Um, so, they might have gone uh, closer to the index on duration to try to get back closer to benchmark. Uh, the other way you can do it is also look at assets which aren't well benchmarked in the test, like alternative assets. And if you get rid of those, then that reduces some of that risk as well. So, so some funds might have, uh, have worked in those areas. Um, and that gets them closer to the benchmarks. However, in the past year, that would have also left a lot of money on the table. That is, if they had been a bit further away from benchmark in those areas, they might have done a whole lot better. In particular, alternatives was probably the place to be in the past year. And effectively, the test was chasing members out of that asset class. So while these funds might have passed, while some of these funds might have passed the test because they were managing more closely, they may not have delivered as well as they could have in terms of outcomes for their members because of that focus on just passing the test. So, Ian, can you just explain a little bit more exactly what the funds were measured on for the performance test? Yeah. So, the test is primarily an implementation test. So, what it does is it says, let's look at all the asset classes that you invest in and let's say... Um, what would the performance have been if you had got sort of a standard benchmark performance in each of those asset classes for the past eight years? Um, and then take off administration fees. And then if you get within 50 basis points of that overall performance benchmark, then you've passed the test. So it, it's all about how well you're investing in the asset classes um, from your asset allocation. It doesn't really look at um, 
the uh, the benefit in having a really good asset allocation. It doesn't really look at the ultimate outcomes in terms of uh, actual performance of members. That's not what it measures, which is one of the real problems with the test. Thank you for that. So, Kim, coming to you, how does the test influence trustee behaviour? Can you see what has happened in the past years to funds who have failed, for example? Sure. I mean, so the purpose of the test is to uh, really identify underperforming funds um, through the process. So it's, it's a good purpose. You really want it to be an effective, an effective check-in along the path to good long-term member outcomes. Um, so I think that's that, that's got a, a, a good intent. But in reality, the way it's been constructed, as Anne said, is around um, just testing the implementation of your strategic asset allocation uh, using benchmarks that have now been set officially um, and one with really serious consequences if a fund fails. So, you know, as you would expect, um, it's had a really large focus in terms of uh, what funds and trustees have been looking at from a governance and investment decision-making standpoint. Um, they've needed to go through a process of understanding how their portfolio is taking active positions versus the the SAA and the benchmarks determining if they're comfortable with the active risk, you know, how that's not just kind of over eight years, but over one and three year periods, how could it, how could their portfolio be different? Are they comfortable with the size of positioning? Are they comfortable with the extent to which they think they will outperform um, under their base case or different environments? And funds also need to understand they now have this entire new objective to add into the mix. They have long-term objectives of CPI plus that kind of is the total return that you're aiming for over the very long term. But rolling 10 years for my super is the is the time frame um, that that's kind of monitored and, and set. There's peer objectives. And I think trustees uh, have needed to understand that these are different objectives and they can be competing um, and different um different objectives will send you off on a different investment decision. So you need to kind of wrestle with them together and work out what your priority is. Um, I think funds with strong performance may feel more confident uh, in their active positions um, where they retain conviction. I think they still need to look at them and say, is this is this what we want to be doing? But if they feel strongly about them over the medium to longer term, then I think, you know, they've, they've been comfortable to sit with their active positions. Um, but I think funds that failed are in a more difficult position. You need to understand why, uh, why you've failed, um, you know, what's led to that. You know, in some ways, not knowing that the test existed for the first um, uh, substantial period of time that the, the test has been looking at uh, meant that some funds were just investing in a way that uh, was assessed as underperformance by the test, but it was really just an implementation difference. So, being structurally underweight risk within asset classes, being underweight certain asset classes versus the SAA because they were longer-term targets. Those things have, have been looked at and assessed and effectively can be uh, closed down. Um, in terms of active risk positions, you know, underperforming funds need to think about, you know, as Ian said, is this something that's been underperforming? Is this something I want to cut my position on now? It's not going to work out. Or do I want to hold it through? And I think, um, you know, going back to, to the first question that you asked um, in Ian's comments, I thought what was really interesting was kind of in the second year of the test, we had such a different environment. 
that funds were investing through. It was a really difficult period. Equity and bond markets were down. Things that had performed poorly for the seven years, liquid alternatives, value bias, you know, being more conservative within asset classes paid off last year. And we saw funds that had failed the test go to the top of the peer performance charts and be top performers. Um, so that's really interesting to see how the test is interacting really with different environments. And it's picking up an issue that the test isn't really investing across a cycle. Funds will always invest differently. Um, and there'll be times when different approaches, you know, come out on top and when different approaches struggle. Uh, you want to kind of have a test that picks up those different environments uh, in full and not just assess that on one particular sort of environment. Um, and, you know, it suggests that what the test can do is pick up funds uh, and fail funds that aren't actually over the long term bad funds, um, I think that issue of the time period is really interesting, Kim, because the first test was over seven years, sort of over uh, um, over a seven-year bull market. So it's going to reward funds that have been risk-on, and funds that do well in a risk-on environment, uh, they're the ones that get the big tick. Funds that have been trying to be a bit more conservative in some asset classes, maybe because they've got some older members and um, an older demographic. Uh, they were really punished in the test. But in some ways, it was quite unfair having um, a test over a period where it wasn't a full cycle and indeed everything was up and up and up. So in some ways, um, it's actually been quite helpful to have the eighth year as a year, which has been the, exactly the opposite. So now we get a much better idea. Now the test is actually sort of a bit more appropriate because it's over a period where there has been... Um, a significant downturn. Uh, and as you were saying, there were some funds that failed the test uh, and now they've passed the test. But unfortunately, those funds are in the process of winding up and going somewhere else because uh, failing the test, especially if you're a smaller fund, really meant that APRA was strongly encouraging these funds to move on. Um, so I think that the results over eight years are a much better indication of the quality of funds. Um, and look, I think that's another reason why we've seen fewer fails in the second year, because it's actually a, a fairer period to do the test over. Ian, are there any particular examples that you can call out that perhaps didn't do well in the first test and have now done well as um, the markets have changed? Yeah, look, um, a fund that comes to mind is Christian Super. So they failed the, the test the first time. And I think um, in most... Um, Performance surveys, they're number two or three in the in the um, in the uh, in the 2022 year, um, and they'll be moving to uh, another fund and merging with another fund. Uh, but if this if if the first test had been done now, I think they would have probably continued and continue with our strategy and maybe done quite well in quite a volatile time, which we which we're, we have had the past year and maybe with us for a little while longer. So there have been obviously quite a, a few complaints and um, criticisms of the performance test. In your view, what's wrong with the performance test as it stands? Um, I might go first. Um, just I think there's two issues. One is we're looking at a test which looks at one number over one period. And as we said, that period, especially the first time, wasn't perhaps the best period to measure because it was a, a seven-year bull market. And it's just one number. So 
Um, we shouldn't think that that one number is going to tell us everything we need to know about the quality of investment outcomes. Um, so that's the first point. And the second point is if you've got a flawed test, one number over one period, and then you have the consequences of that test being existential, um, if you don't pass the test, then um, you've got to write out to all your members and and politely suggest they may look at um, other funds. And then if you fail the second time, then you can't accept new money. That they're existential consequences. So um, that's going to drive a fund's behaviour in terms of investments. The fund will do pretty much whatever it can to make sure it passes the test. And as we said before, um, actions to pass the test in the next 12 months may not be consistent with actions to drive the best long-term outcomes for members. Yeah, I, th I think that the interaction of how the test is constructed and the serious consequences of failing, um, uh, you know, creating such a hyper focus on on the test um, and shorter term than than longer term. Um, I mean, the fact is, ultimately, many funds have done very well versus the test without even knowing it was going to to exist, right? Uh, and that will have included lots of positions that through that time weren't working, uh, but knowing that if you then fail, now the test does exist and is known, knowing that you can then fail and um, and the fund's, you know, existence is under threat, you know, means that the decision-making process is more challenging to work through that environment. Um, and I, I really think the timeframe issue and the shortening of the, the focus um, is really stifling what's a significant competitive advantage for super funds, um, you know, and a, a key aspect of what has been successful uh, for those funds over a really long term, um, you know, which is the long term nature. You want to be able to construct, you know, a really well constructed, forward looking, long term investment portfolio. It's going to have things in it that are active risk, risk versus the test that won't all perform well, um, and you don't want them all to perform well at the same time because you want a diversified portfolio that can be robust for different environments that are difficult to predict in advance. Um, such as we're in now, um, you know, people didn't predict necessarily the pandemic or the uh, or the current um, Russian invasion of Ukraine and what that's done to the energy markets. Um, but you want your portfolio to be robust to different circumstances. If you are um, dealing with a test where you're thinking, well, over the next one year or three years, I'm at risk of failing, um, it, you, you're going to be focusing on your worldview for that short-term period rather than what can be an excellent long-term portfolio, but you don't know exactly when things will pan out and, and do well or not. Um, and particularly dealing with long-term investment themes like climate change that you want to put in or investments that take a while to pay off, um, like in a private equity sort of structure, those things become more challenging, I think, with the shortened time frame. Um, and there's a couple of, of things to do with the test itself as well. Um, certainly, I agree with Ian on the narrowness issue um, and, and just focusing on the implementation rather than the actual total return that members receive. Um, that's the member outcome. So, we should be testing that. Uh, I think the way it accounts for risk, which is just what's embedded as in the SAA, is limiting um, to, to kind of innovative portfolio construction. Sometimes you may want to deal with risk within an asset class via derivatives, things that aren't um, captured in the test or effectively um, are risk positions that are penalised as underperformance unless you get your timing for that exactly right. Um, I think there's some issues on the minor side. Um, they do get some attention, but 
and maybe incremental improvements, but some issues with what is an asset class and what's not. Um, and if it's not, then it's an active position, um, as well as some issues with the benchmarks themselves, um, the infrastructure one in particular, um, but some others uh, I think will will pan out over time, you know, are things to be thought about. Um, but um, but primarily, I think the narrowness, the time frame, and the the consequence issue uh, are the things that are creating, um, I think, a, a constraint on um, good long term investment thinking and decision making. And I think those issues with the test, there's, there's been a term that a lot of people have used, unintended consequences. So the test has had unintended consequences, and we generally refer to it's probably been a few funds, but not all that failed. Um, a few funds that's been been unfair on them, um, and maybe they shouldn't have failed. Um, but also just this drive towards short-termism in terms of investments. So we often say they're unintended consequences, but I'd like to point out that they were totally predictable consequences. Everyone knew they were going to happen. So unintended, but um, they were always going to happen. So um, I suppose where we're at in the moment is, um, can we make the test better so we can remove some of these unintended consequences, but keep some of the really positive parts of the test in terms of, yeah, there probably should be a test to make sure that members are in good funds, especially with their MI super money. They haven't chosen this. So uh, the idea of the test is great, but surely we can do better in the implementation part. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. So on that point, Ian, what do you think should be put forward to the Your Future, Your Super consultation paper to Treasury? Yeah. Um, if we think about what the issues, the problems are, one is one number over one period and the consequences. So we probably need to address those two issues. So first of all, to address the one number over one period. So if we could move to some sort of multi-metric approach, perhaps over multiple periods, um, because one one number can never tell you the full story. It's sort of like um, sort of like if you're um wanting to buy a house, and you think, okay, I want to buy a house. How will I do my research? Well, I'll get onto Street View, and I'll have a look at the Street View picture of the house, and I'll make my decision on that because that shows me the house. Well, it shows you one perspective of the house, and perhaps not the most helpful perspective of the house but it shows you a perspective, but it'd be very dangerous to make a decision on that basis. And effectively, that's what we're doing with the performance test. We're making a decision on one perspective, which is perhaps not the most helpful perspective. So if we can move towards multiple perspective, maybe over multiple, period, multiple periods. So what could that look like? Perhaps we have um, the tests uh, that we're looking at the moment. Uh, so about eight years, perhaps we look at five years and we look at 10 years. Um, five years could be interesting because one of, one of the reasons why some funds might have failed is they had some really rubbish years, say seven or eight years ago. The past five years have actually been really good. So that's helpful information to know the quality um, of that um, uh, of that investment. So, so one could be extending the current test to look over a few different periods. Another could be looking at actual member outcomes, <laughs> which is what we should be about. So some sort of risk-adjusted return uh, uh, assessment and maybe doing that over multiple periods. Um, 
Maybe there should be a fee test as well, an admin fee test that uh, you don't want admin fees to be too high. So that could be included as well. So, so, so there could be multiple metrics. The issue though is then what do you do with all that? Say if you have six or seven metrics, <laughs> some are pluses, some are minuses. How do you decide whether a fund passes or fails? So one approach to that could be that um, if you have a certain number of fails, if you have more fails than passes, um, then you fail the test. Or there could potentially be um, a place for APRA to, to uh, step in and, and say, okay, our fund has had a few fails here. Um, are there extenuating circumstances for those fails um, and that um, they shouldn't fail the test or, or should they be deemed to have failed the test? So I think there's potential for APRA to, to have... Um, um, a review process. So we're, so we're not just deciding the future of funds on a few imperfect metrics, um, but there's a bit of sort of sense brought into the process as well, understanding of what's going on. Having said that, though, I'm not sure how APRA feels about being involved in deciding the, the life or death of, of, of funds, but um, that's, yeah, so that could be a challenge. But so I think that multiple metrics and with the potential of having some sort of um, review where perhaps a fund has failed a couple of metrics but passed others. I mean, I think they're all really good points. Um, you know, I think investment risk is a diff difficult thing to capture uh, with any one metric. And we've currently got a test that effectively picks it up via the SAA settings, but there are other there are other risk metrics, none of which are perfect either, some of which are used in the heat map um, with growth defensive, there's volatility uh, and the like, none of, none of them are perfect and each one as a standalone would be as problematic as the existing test. But um, in combination, uh, if we put together a set of tests that that kind of give a different perspective um, on the house to go with Anne's um, comparison point, um, I think that would be useful. Then you can see, well, um, you know, what, what's driving, you know, the risk-adjusted performance um, and whether it's underperformed and is that reasonable or not. Um, you know, I've got some sympathy for, for the total return as well, um, just by itself. I know you need to kind of obviously compare that with like entities, but that's what members are getting, um, that aligns to the CPI plus objectives. Uh, and and is missing actually in um, in both the test and and the heat map. Uh, you can be the best performing fund and and fail uh, these tests. I think um, the consequence and review um, and the time frame to me go a little hand in hand. I think if you introduce five years, that's and ten years. That's I think that's a really interesting concept, particularly for funds that have changed their investment process quite meaningfully since the the start of the time frame, and that's what's been causing the underperformance. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to be then failing people over five years just because it, that's the investment environment. It's not a test testing over the whole cycle. So that that brings in a judgment, and I think uh, you know that's that's really important. This kind of drop dead nature of failure. Uh, is really serious. It, it's what's kind of causing people to balance their decision-making towards focusing on the test when they have to weigh up uh, different priorities. Um, and I think a forward-looking assessment is really worthwhile. What's caused the underperformance um, and having a forward-looking assessment as to whether um, a fund has 
has made improvements. That's what we do, you know, at Frontier. We're an investment consultant. We assess strategies and fund managers and the like. Of course, we look at performance and we understand how it how it's been in the context of the environment that's occurred. Um, but we don't we don't judge a manager solely on performance in and of itself. You know, you assess the team and the process and the strategy on a forward-looking basis. Um, and I think, you know, it would make sense for there to be an element of that here um, in terms of the, the final outcome uh, of the test. Um, it, it, it's interesting, Kim, that we often see the disclaimer, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance, and yet we're basing decisions of quality of funds and life or death of funds on that very thing. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there's a lot more information that can help to understand the quality of a super fund, but it's not just a simple number in a box. Uh, there does need to be some judgment and understanding there. So if that could be included in some way, potentially through APRA, that would be positive, but it's not simple. No. On another um, aspect, how does the performance test impact areas of investment, including ESG and social impact investing? Kim, do you, do you want to take that? Sure, yes. I mean, these issues, responsible investing, climate change, ESG, um, you know, they really have very considerable momentum um, and focus in the superannuation industry. I think that's ramped up considerably, you know, over time, uh, including through the pandemic to today, um, from what we can see and, and what we focus on ourselves when we're looking at investments um, and, and strategy at Frontier. I think what the test does um, to some of that decision making is, uh, is I, I think a, a limitation on how you might think about Im implementing that. So if you're concerned about climate change and, and really just thinking, well, um, let's reduce, you know, the the risk from climate change in my equity portfolio um, by by various various means, could be low carbon or something, you know, more sophisticated. With the test, you're now going to be also thinking about, well, what, what risk am I taking versus the equity benchmark here and what sort of underperformance might that create over the next year or three years or eight years uh, versus the what is a very, you know, a long-term climate change threat um, that you're trying to mitigate. Um, and APRA, of course, is, you know, you, you want to be mitigating as well, uh, but you really don't know when it's going to play out. And there will be years, as we've seen more recently, where um, those in those those biased um, low-carbon investments will underperform the broader the broader market. Um, so I think what what happens is that you may still do that, but you may take um, less of a position um, because you also want to manage the shorter-term risk versus the test. Um, I think it's also another consideration for some um, kind of new investments that you might take um, to do with social, um, you know, affordable housing, social infrastructure, you know, even things like, um, you know, wind farms, things that that I think, you know, can have a really good investment um, proposition, can be good return for the risk being taken, have a role potentially in superannuation fund portfolios, but don't really kind of align to any of the benchmarks where you might think they belong as an asset class. You know, um, social infrastructure is lower returning than the broad infrastructure um index that's been selected. Um, you're kind of locking in underperformance versus the test. Yes, it's lower risk and that may play out in certain environments, but your expected long-term return is going to be lower, even though it's a good investment and it might make sense in the context of the, the overall portfolio and have a role to play for long-term outcomes to members. And I think, you know, it, it 
you know, we've always had benchmarks and some of them are more common, commonly used than others. Um, but this is really the first time there's been a decree about what the risk of some asset classes should be. Um, and I think it's been quite impactful on mid-risk assets, so property, infrastructure, credit, um, alternatives. The benchmark set, um, you know, are, are, they're interesting and they, they create a certain um, uh, expectation of what that asset class should be uh, that previously one could tailor to what made sense for the fund for its overall portfolio construction. So that's an unintended consequence, I think. Um, that perhaps wasn't fully understood how different some of those asset classes could be in the role that they play in portfolios. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I agree, Kim, with uh, the test does make it difficult to do much more in the ESG space. Like the rationale could be in the long run, this is going to be better. But if, if a fund had sort of gone more heavily down the ESG route, over the past four months, there would have been significant underperformance in, in um, especially the equity uh, markets, and that could have had a significant impact on um, them passing the test. So, the past year has been a bit of a warning that be careful of moving too much down the ESG route because that could be a significant risk to you passing, um, um, uh, failing the test. And that's not so. If that's an unintended consequence and, and quite a sad one as well. Like there are there are investments that make a lot of sense from an, from a investment thesis uh, perspective. A lot of the ones you mentioned there, and they should probably be for diversification reasons, uh, part of portfolios. But uh, in every asset class, you you're measured to a benchmark, and some of these asset classes are so broad in terms of so infrastructure property uh, alternatives, they're so broad, and we want that breadth. We want funds to invest in that breadth, but by investing in that breadth, breadth, you actually end up introducing significant risk. Um, and with the existential risk of the test, it makes it really hard to make those decisions. Mm. Um, so, look, one approach could be do you sort of move down over time towards some sort of more ESG-friendly benchmarks, but even that would be quite difficult. And indeed, which one do you choose? <laughs> There's lots of them. Um, um, this also makes it difficult for choice options. There's some choice options which are sustainable options. And at the moment, the proposal is that they'll be benchmarked towards broad market indices. And a number of them will fail <laughs> just be, just because they're not trying to invest towards those. So, in terms of um, benchmarks, especially in the choice world, there needs to be some flexibility there for ESG. It does make it harder in the my super world because it's harder to have different uh, benchmarks for different parts of equities, etc. So, I think the ESG piece is a really tricky one, and I'd really hate to see that one of the results of the test is funds back away from investing uh, in ESG themes, which in theory should be very positive for long-term returns and long-term risk mitigation. Where do you see the way forward in that area? It is a tricky one, um, and indeed that's... Um, I think the consultation will be interesting to see what comes up in this space. So I, so I think in the choice space, I think there needs to be an acceptance that perhaps we can chunk down strategies into um, different strategies. Things like ESG might have some different benchmarks. Things like real return strategies might be treated a bit differently. So I think 
rather than one sort of test for choice, I think perhaps there needs to be a few for different segments of the market. How do we do it in the My Super Space? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you deal with ESG in the My Super Space if you've got this implementation test. I think part of it is you have that multiple metric approach. Um, I think that that would be part of the solution, but it is a tricky one to solve. I think it also comes down to the, you know, is there a review of failure and what's caused yes. it? Um, yeah. Because that, that would then enable um, a, a discussion around, well, you know, did it come from, from you know, I'm certainly not suggesting that um, ESG investments are intended, you know, may, may deliver less return um, for what they're trying to achieve. They should achieve a good return. But if, in fact, for the environment that happened, they were the cause of some of the underperformance, you know, it, it's really important in, a, in an environment where funds are being asked to both outperform the test and deal with things like climate change, of course, they, you know, they should and they want to from an investment standpoint, um, but they can they can run into each other over shorter timeframes. Having that that assessment, I think, is really important. Um, and to the extent that you know superannuation funds can take advantage or be part of um, you know an evolving economy that deals with you know some of the challenges around you know climate change um, and social social issues and invest in things. Um, uh, to, to that effect for sustainable goals, um, but well-structured investments um, that make sense in portfolios. To the to the extent that there are good op- opportunities available, we wouldn't want them, you know, held back because of because of the the narrowness of the performance test and the the consequence structure that's in place at the moment. Um, you know, I think back, um, you know, to to some years ago, you know, infrastructure. If we'd set up this test, you know, 15, 20 years ago, infrastructure may not have been an asset class. It's now quite a meaningful asset class for quite a lot of funds. It's certainly something we've supported for a long period of time. But overseas, it's not necessarily an asset class because it's less developed. So if if you'd had a test um, that didn't include that as an asset class, um, you know, where would it live? Would it live in private equity, in which case it's being benchmarked against listed equities in which case these investments may never have been made because they're lower risk and lower returning than listed equity. Still one of the best performing asset classes over the long term, but, um, but you know, expected to be lower risk and lower returning than listed equity in general. Uh, then you wouldn't have even done it, right? And so what's the innovation of the future that funds should be thinking about? And is it not happening because we've set certain benchmarks and told, you know, um, you know, set up certain asset classes in a particular way. I think, I think you're right, Kim. I think the review mechanism is is an important part. Um, we wouldn't want the review mechanism to be something that uh, a fund thinks, oh, I can just talk to APRA and, and, and I'll be able to get the tick. I think there needs to be a pretty high bar to be able to get through that review. If you failed, say, most of the metrics, uh, it needs to be a high bar to get through. But if if, if there's clear reasons like investing in some of these assets, then that should be fair enough. Yeah, I think, I think, you, I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's the review, um, which makes APRA's job a lot harder, but I think will lead to much yeah. better results. Yeah. And, 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 sorry, and, and will lead to funds making better decisions and choosing better investments. Yeah. And I think multiple metrics that kind of have different angles on risk, I think is also mm. useful because then you're able to take some lower risk investments within an asset class because the the overall test 
um, understands that there are lower risk elements in there. So on, on that point, Kim, are there any particular types of tests that you would like to see included? I mean, I think we've talked through kind of, I guess, the broader elements. Um, so specifically, you know, more than one single test um, and different measures of risk, um, looking at the overall return outcome. I think there's a discussion to head about time frame as well. Um, and really, um, it, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not an easy thing. I think, you know, we could all come up with exactly different tests and, and criticise each one. So I think it's the mix. Uh, we don't want to kind of overcomplicate it, but I think we want to give more room for, for um, you know, funds to have a bit more flexibility on portfolio construction and risk management across the portfolio and an ability to manage for long-term um, thematics uh, and risks and an ability to innovate. Uh, so I think if we if we broaden the tests uh, to be um, to be less kind of single uh, focused and just on implementation. Uh, and we again have a, a look at this uh, review mechanism. I think that will that will be um, a good step in the right direction um, and quite impactful. And are you seeing funds working together to achieve the same goals here? I think the issues um, are well are well understood, um, and. And I, I think this consultation is a is a really important mechanism, and and um, you know different parts of the industry, um, you know, are coming together to have those discussions around you know what are the issues and and what are the solutions because this isn't easy. Um, there's no kind of particularly strong solution. Um, you know, we said when when we we uh, put forward a submission at the start, um, you know, we thought that a review mechanism and um, multiple tests. Uh, and different measures of risk and looking at the total return um, with the answer. I still think that's the case, um, but it's kind of the, it's the specifics, I guess, of how it comes about is whether you're creating other issues and, that we need to solve for. And finally, how has the performance test affected your jobs? I mean, it's obviously been a key area of focus and discussion. You know, we work with a lot of superannuation funds in Australia. Um, you know, they, they were all in... Um, you know, a range of positions, um, but I think it's been really important to help um, funds in our role kind of navigating the investment decision-making process and provide a perspective on, you know, what their portfolio looks like in the context of this test, as well as, um, you know, from a broader investment standpoint and how to kind of bring those things together. Um, you know, we still have a really, um, obviously, our main focus is about advising you know, what are the best investment ideas, what's our view of where markets are going um, and what to do about that. Um, but we've really embedded, you know, the lens of your future, your super is part of that. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, there's a whole decision-making process and an understanding that funds have needed to go through uh, in terms of their positioning. What, what I wouldn't want to see, um, you know, is a fund who hasn't, you know, I think funds need to have done that work to feel comfortable with their portfolio. I don't think you want to look at surprises down the track um, so we should have known that, um, or we, you know, that was that risk positioning was too high. Now, um, I think kind of do the work now, find a place that you feel comfortable, think through the governance of what this actually means and what reporting you want. Uh, transparency, they're the things we've been working with uh, funds on. And I, and I think for me, it's sort of similar. Um, it's 
The, the test has raised some really important questions and it's appropriate to sort of try to identify what's the base level that you want from a fund. Like it's, 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 it's default money. People aren't necessarily choosing to put their money into these funds. So there probably needs to be some sort of uh, assessment here. The, the tricky part is about how you do that. Um, and there's no easy answers. Um, so we've tried to help funds understand how they're tracking towards um, the test. That's part of what we're doing. But also when we assess funds, when we assess a fund's investments, um, we look at people, process, portfolios, various performance risk measures, et cetera. But now we need to look at the performance test from a sustainability point of view. If a fund is not going to pass the test, there's sustainability issues there, but also understanding how a fund is responding to the test, even if they are passing, and how much is it driving their investment decisions. Um, or So for some funds, it's more something that they're just keeping an eye on, but for some funds, it's really driving um, their decisions, which is probably not a good thing and impacts how we assess um, the quality of that fund's investments. Well, thank you both for that discussion. It's been really fascinating and I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot more about what comes out of this in the next few months. Thank you, Kim, and thank you, Ian. You've been listening to Kim Bowater and Ian Fryer on performance test outcomes as part of our Future of Super podcast series with AIA. AIA.